Hey, everybody. Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks. I'm your host. I spent more than 20 years writing wills and trusts for people, and I'm here to tell you, end-of-life planning isn't a tedious chore or a complete bummer. In fact, it's really important to do for the people you love the most, and you might find it surprisingly meaningful, too. I can't wait to get started with today's episode. But before we do, a quick thanks to Redesigning the End, our sponsor. Redesigning the End offers great online courses to the next generation of death care leaders, and I'm really honored to have their support. Are you ready? Let's go. Very few people know that we exist, and yet we do such incredible work. We can help you do good right in your backyard. We can meet you where you're at with whatever you're interested in, however much you want to give. We can help. That's Nicole Taylor. She's the president and CEO of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, the nation's largest community foundation. There's more than 800 community foundations, and they're located in almost every community in this country. Nicole was kind enough to come on Life, Death, Law today to talk with me about how all of us can use community foundations to make a greater impact in our own communities. So, Nicole, welcome to Life, Death, Law. Thrilled to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. You are our first professional philanthropist on the show. I'm honored. (laughs) Me too. But the reason I asked you to be on the show, there's a lot of reasons. But for sure, one of them is that when people confront the fact that we're all going to die at some point and they discover the amazing truth you can't take anything with you, I feel it's a huge opportunity for people to consider legacy. And I don't mean legacy just when they die. I mean, we can all start creating our legacies today. And I think community foundations can play such a huge role in that and are such an underknown resource for people that I wanted you to be on the show to talk about what community foundations do, how people can make use of them. And I think if nothing else, the experience of the last couple of years has really brought it home that large global events are experienced in our homes. Yeah, they're global, but we feel them where we live. And, you know, if I had to like imagine a foundation that would support local nonprofits, I would imagine a community foundation, except guess what? They already exist, been around for a hundred years. So with that introduction, you want to tell my listeners a little bit about generally what community foundations do, and then I'd love to talk about what Silicon Valley Community Foundation is doing. No, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. I often feel like the community foundation sector means a campaign like the Got Milk campaign, because there are 800 of us across the country, and we each serve a specific geographic location. So there's not, there's not an inch of the United States that isn't covered by a community foundation. Yeah, I mean, very few people know that we exist. And yet we do such incredible work. We are this bridge between community needs, what's happening in our community, and donors, people who want to give, people who want to give back, and oftentimes local companies and businesses who also want to figure out how to best give back. And we are the connective tissue that helps make that happen. And like you said, all of these these massive global things that happen or national things that happen, they play out right at home. And community foundations stay on top of those very issues. So we step up when there's a natural disaster, a man-made disaster. We step up because we keep our ears to the ground. You know, we have a distinct role in the philanthropic sector. People have heard of the private foundations that are out there. But we, because we serve 
geographic areas, we are positioned to really meet long-term needs. We evolve as our communities evolve and we make sure that we are relevant and we stay in tune with that. And then, like I said, we when the unexpected happens, which seems to happen every six months in the Bay Area, <laughs> the unexpected happens, we're there. And we're the ones that people can turn to knowing that their philanthropic resources are going to go to good. Yeah. I mean, so often when I work with people, I feel they have this philanthropic desire. They'd like to do something in their communities, but it's a little overwhelming for somebody. And it can feel a little bit like just what could one person do, right? Because so much of what we're dealing with is so big, right? It's not just, I mean, a local food bank is a great thing, but, you know, the fact that so many children, for example, are hungry is a little bit hard to get your head around. And so how would uh, just an average person who lives in a community who wants to, the, the word that keeps coming to mind over and over as I got ready for this was leverage and impact, right? How can I leverage my resources to have the greatest local impact? And how can I, if I want to do that, what am I looking for in my community foundation? You know, there's, there's two ways to look at that. One is what you want to have an impact on. You know, I find that people, they care about certain things more than other things. And yeah, where do you start? Okay, so housing and homelessness is a big example, right? Or, you know, climate change. Well, climate change is happening locally, right? But where do you start? And community foundations have the staff who can help you know where to start, whether you want to start with small organizations where a little bit actually does make a huge difference on smaller organizations, or if you want to leverage what funds you do have with other funds, other people to make a bigger difference. And the Community Foundation allows both. Some people are very satisfied just, you know, funding organizations, being in touch with the organizations and playing it at very local levels. And we help make that happen. And others do want, like you said, the bigger leverage because they do want to have an impact either on public policy, which is actually where the real change happens, right? Where the real dollars are in the, in the public sector, or they know that, that their money is being leveraged with others who care about the similar issues. How does this happen, right? So if I want to put my money into a pool with other people to focus on a particular issue like education or food security or housing, would I look at my local community foundation and find out if they have, is it an endowment fund? Is that the name? It depends. Some are endowed funds and some aren't. So we have a community opportunity fund, which acts like an endowed fund because we want it here perpetuity for this community. But we also create hold funds. The best example was during COVID. So COVID hit, everybody's like, what do we do? There's so much going on. Nonprofits were, were struggling. Small businesses were struggling. Education, childcare sector, everything just was at a breaking point. So we created a COVID regional response fund for the Bay Area, 10 counties in the Bay Area. We worked with other community foundations to figure out how are you going to disperse the money. We ended up raising $66 million. And then we created sub funds, if you will, for nonprofits, for small businesses, for education, for childcare. So if somebody gave $50, they knew they were putting it into a pool that was being leveraged by other resources and they knew that it was going going to go for, you know, for good. Somebody gave $50,000. They knew that it was going to be leveraged across the region and for good. 
So yes, we make it easy for people to, what I call, get off the sidelines, you know, get into the game. And so when you got that big pool of money, who made the decision on where those grants made? So talk about local control of community funds, because that's another huge difference, I think. It is. I keep thinking of food, like farmer's market food. Like it's so much better when you eat food when it's grown locally, right? Sustainably versus the supermarket stuff that gets trucked in from God knows where. And I mean, I know money isn't food, but I do feel like it has a certain quality of localness that matters. Yes, for our pooled funds and also for our endowed funds, which are legacy funds. My favorite word? Yes, we have over 70 endowments. And I think almost all of them were started as legacy gifts, people's estate plans. So that allows us to do the discretionary work that we want to do and the impact we want to have in our local communities. So one, we have experts on staff, you know, content experts who understand what's happening, who stay in tune with trends, with best practices and with the community leaders. Our board is made up of people from our communities. And that's a requirement of community foundations, right? It is. So we look to, you know, diverse skill set, diversity in terms of background experience, lived experience, gender, race, culture. You know, we really try to represent the communities that we serve. So we reflect the Silicon Valley region. The other thing that I did when it started during COVID, because we were all sheltering, we couldn't get out to communities and through neighborhoods and to see everybody was home. I created, with help of my team, a community advisory council. And they are community leaders, over 20 of them, all leaders of color in our region. And they span the gamut of issue areas that they're involved in locally. And they provide advice. They hold us accountable. They hold our feet to the fire. They raise a flag when they, they're seeing a trend in something that we should be aware of. And they play a role. They literally play a role in reviewing applications for funding with our staff so that our staff gets the benefit of some of leaders who are on the ground in the community. That only happens with community foundations, that kind of specialized expertise in your own backyard. You know, and it's it's easy for people to think that, you know, you need tens of hundreds of millions of dollars in order to make impact. And because a community foundation aggregates philanthropic capital from many, 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 you know, we have close to 2,000 donors, right? So for many people, it allows people who just want to give what they have and are able to give to have an impact. It's huge. Which so many of us want these days, I think. Exactly. Exactly. So that's one way that people can interact with the community foundation through an endowed fund or a purpose fund. Let's talk a little bit about the other way for the donor advised fund model. And there, one, I want to make sure people understand what a donor advised fund is. So just so people who are listening, maybe they don't know what a donor advised fund is, but I'm going to open a donor advised fund at your foundation. Okay. And the minimum is $5,000, right? And I'm going to give you either $5,000 or even better, if I have some, I'm going to give you $5,000 of appreciated stock. I get a charitable deduction for the $5,000. You get to sell the stock and not pay any capital gains taxes. So now there's a $5,000 charity bucket that I get to advise you 
on how to spend in my community. Advised is the critical word because you got tax deduction. It's not really mine. Yeah, it's not yours anymore. So that's why you advise on it and you advise where you'd like it to be spent. And we work that and that's when we work with you and we try to make it easy. We also try to make it painless and actually joyful. But the big question I have about these is if I'm a person who wants to open one, why should I do it at Silicon Valley Community Foundation or Albuquerque Community Foundation if they offer it instead of Charles Schwab, right? Or Vanguard or Fidelity. So we have commercial sponsors. We have community sponsors. Help unpack for my listeners why they would want to make a choice toward a community foundation where they live. Right. Because the Donor Advisement at a Community Foundation benefits your community. So there are costs to operating a donor advice fund, whether it's at Schwab, Vanguard, Fidelity, and we, we actually know and work with all of the elements. I didn't want to single anybody out here. No, but we were, we're all partnering, you know, together actually on donor advice fund work. But the community foundations, the cost of operating it is the cost of our doing business in your local community. And you get the benefit of our staff who it can advise you on your philanthropy, whether it's what to do locally or if you if you want to give globally or if you want to give in back in your hometown. How do you figure out how to do that and how to do it effectively? That's part of what you're doing when you set up a debtor advice fund with a community foundation. You get the benefit of, of knowing that your dollars are sitting in that community chest. So everything that's earned, everything that's in that community chest is there where you live, that's where all those resources go. And then you get the benefit of a professional staff to work with you. So now you're sitting on this big community chest of literally billions of dollars. But a lot of that is held in these donor advised funds. So you don't get to direct the money the way you do with endowed funds that you, that the foundation itself makes grants, right? So help me understand how a, a community foundation, not just yours, works with those donors to meet community needs. Yes. Through education, encouragement, and influence is what I would say, is how we work with the donors who hold donor advice funds. We had a webinar yesterday, and we had leaders from Asian American communities here locally speak to what the needs are and how little dollars actually go to these communities and the rise of Asian hate that happened. And it was just, we had 90 people signed up. During lockdown, we had lots more, 100, 200, but everybody was home. But there was nothing else to do, yeah. Right, exactly. So that's how we, you know, that's part of the influence in educating and, and informing our donors of issues. And we do these webinars on a regular basis. And we reach out to the donors who have donor advice funds regularly with giving guides every quarter to say, hey, here's a list of organizations that we're going to focus on early childhood. We think you need to understand what's happening in the early childhood space. Here are some organizations. So I wouldn't get that kind of services at a commercial donor advice fund sponsor? Not really. It would just be a charity bucket and I could write checks. Yes. What we're trying to do is partner with them so that they can have their clients learn about community foundations. Many people have donor advice funds in different places. So a lot of our donors will have a donor advice fund with us and a donor advice fund at one of the financial institutions. And a lot of times we'll see that they'll they'll use our advice and then that advice they'll use to grant out what they have at their financial institution as well. I know that feeling. Yeah, but that's okay. 
you know, yes. And I'm, I'm, that's okay. I'm good with that. Right. You just put it out in the world and wherever it ends up, it's a good thing. That's exactly how I feel. It is exactly how I feel. So I'm so curious, how do community foundations reflect their communities? I think that's just it. You have board members who represent those communities. They hire the CEO. They have the staff that are reflective of those communities, of those communities, care about those communities, and understand what it takes. And if I'm, you know, living in Albuquerque, how do I find out about my local community foundation? Is that the Council on Foundations? The Council on Foundations, wherever you live, the Council on Foundations is the best place to go. They have a community foundation locator. I'll, I'll post a link to that in the show notes as well. It's great. because you'll, you'll see, you, you can see on the map, there's one everywhere. Yeah. So if you could talk directly to just everyday people who don't know about community foundations, which is what I hope we're doing today, what would you like them to know? You know, what's the biggest challenge that you face in, in getting the word out about this resource that's available to everyone? Well, one is that we can help you do good right in your backyard. We can meet you where you're at with what, whatever you're interested in, however much you want to give. We can help. We're here for you. We're here for your, your community is our community. You know, your philanthropic interests are ones that we want to hear about and help you meet. So that's just plain and simple. That would be the first piece. The challenge, I think, is there's a lot of noise in the system. There's a lot out there. And who do they decide to work with? And like I said earlier, even if you have a donor advice fund at your financial institution, which I get, if that's where you have your investments or your retirement accounts, they make it easy. They actually democratize philanthropy in a really great way, those financial institutions. They make it easy to open a donor advice fund. You can also open one at your community foundation and take advantage of our advice. We create communities of givers. We have these webinars. We're going to move to more and more in-person events where donors can meet each other and learn from each other and hopefully partner with each other and leverage each other. So, you know, that's what we're about. Do you feel that you're in competition with the American Cancer Society or the Red Cross? Yeah, we do. We don't because we give to them. We give to the large nonprofits and the, and the small nonprofits. I think the, one of the biggest challenges we face is getting the word out and for people to really understand, yeah, we have 2,000 donors. I wish we had like 20,000 donors, right? And not just to build assets because I just want that many more people to find that it's easy to give. And there's all different kinds of assets they give. You know, we accept property and real estate. And, you know, people are sitting on a lot of appreciated real estate in the Bay Area. And that may be where their wealth is, you know, or restricted stock or, you know, the stock that they've had, they've been sitting on for years and they want to make good with it on the philanthropy side. So the hardest part is, is I think the awareness that, the community foundations are here. And the number one goal is to make our communities better. And we need to do a better job of getting out to people like you, Liza, the professional advisors who work with people, right, on what are you doing about retirement? Do you have, you know, your will and estate plan in place? Well, what's in there? You know, beyond just getting the framework, giving the tools to professional advisors where they can, they can recommend that their clients look at community foundations. Yeah, so, I think, I think that, People who are engaging in estate planning and financial planning are in a kind of open moment for ideas like that. 
So, Nicole, I'm really curious how the pandemic changed your ideas of what local philanthropy looks like. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would love it. I think, you know, as we think about where community foundations are headed, it did change during the pandemic. Our, our, our view on what's possible and donor behavior changed. We spoke earlier about these pooled funds. Every now and then, a community foundation prior to the pandemic may have had a pooled fund on some really special initiative that really only spoke to a few people, right, that might get behind an issue. Once the pandemic hit and we realized we had to move money fast, people were losing their jobs. People didn't know where to eat and if they could feed their children. It was it was crisis. And then people were getting sick and dying. I mean, it, you know, it was all of that. And we knew that we had to step up and make it, again, easy for people to get off the sidelines and not have to worry about picking a charity or picking a nonprofit or picking an issue area that we made it easy. And donors responded. And I think where community foundations are, I don't think, I know this is what we talk about when we do our little insight baseball chats, is, you know, how do we raise money for the long term for our community? Raising endowments, that's a hard concept for some people. They're like, oh, that's what universities do, you know, and they want to make sure their their money is is being used in the here and the now. But how do we get people to think about really community endowments for the long term? And that the community foundations are the place where that can happen. I think people are more amenable to that because they saw how we responded. You know, I don't know that everybody listening will know what an endowed fund is. Let me see if I do, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But an endowed fund is it's it's a fund with enough money that you can just use the interest and the principal stays in perpetuity. Is that correct? Is that how, how you were using the term? Yes. Right. So it's like a it's like a money engine, right? It just keeps running. And it provides permanent long-term support for community resources, right? Yes. And, you know, donors who leave us in their state, they can, you know, and they want to create an endowed fund, they can say, it's unrestricted. The community foundation, you're going to know what the needs are in 10 years, 50 years. You're going to be around long after I'm not around. So, you know, use this money the best way you see fit at the time and over time. Wasn't that how Community Foundation started in Cleveland? Wasn't that the idea that to build an endowment fund for this one place? It was. It was It was a community chest. That's how it started. Well, I kept thinking about the Monopoly cards, actually. Right before we talked, I looked at some of those old cards. I'm like, yes, that was the idea of the community chest in Monopoly based in Atlantic City. Yes, exactly. That was the impetus behind Community Foundations was started in Ohio. <laughs> in the middle of the country where... The leaders at the time said, we need a collective pot that allows our communities to thrive over time. And that's how it started. The other thing I wanted to add about endowments is a donor can can actually restrict the purpose of the endowment. They can say, you know, I actually just really want to give to kids and young people. We honor that. Or they say, you know, climate. We're way behind the eight ball on climate already. So I want to, in my state, I want to create this fund in perpetuity. And, you know, climate is going to be the thing. And we honor that. And then we work each year to figure out, okay, where can those dollars have the biggest impact? Right. So I can imagine that that is a bit of a heavy lift, but pretty compelling ask, though. It is. It is. This is part of the business model that 
we inherited a business model for community foundations where it was based on fees on the assets under management. Well, that only gets so far when you're trying to, you have staff. Yes, okay, you have to have staff and keep the lights on. But really, we need more money to get out to the community. And just using that fee-based model doesn't, doesn't do it. It doesn't cut it because the issues are getting far more complicated. And like I said, about every six months, we've had a major crisis just in the Bay Area. We had a mass shooting back in, in the first quarter of this year. And that was on top of three straight months of rain and flooding. And, you know, it, and I'm, I'm like holding my breath for what's going to happen in the second half of the year. But it's things are getting more intense and our communities are going to need continued investments. And the community foundations are the vehicle to help make that happen. I agree. And the percentage of assets that are in donor advice funds over which the foundation doesn't have direct control versus the money that comes in which you get to make grants with, I would imagine that's different regionally. It's different even within our region. We have probably the largest percentage, 85% of our assets are in donor advice funds. San Francisco Foundation has a much larger endowment. The philanthropy in, in San Francisco goes way back. Right. Right. So there's more, they, they have more, more unrestricted endowment. The community foundations in the, in the center of the country where community foundations started have larger endowments. Because they're older. Yes, they're older, right? So it really, you know, we're in Silicon Valley where wealth, wealth is relatively new here, right? So, so the, you know, the donor advice funds are much more of a vehicle that appeals to people here than it did, you know, a few generations ago in, say, San Francisco or Cleveland. Well, if I wanted to open a donor advice fund, but then let you help me figure out how to spend it, how do I do that? Do I advise a distribution to the foundation? How does that work? Yeah. So once you open a donor advice fund, you get somebody that is your partner on our staff. And they will sit with you or talk with you about what your goals are. They'll let you know what the work that we're working on. And you're like, hey, yeah, I want to give some money to that, to what you're doing. And then we make it possible. It's, you know, behind the scenes, called an inner fund transfer, literally from your fund into our community, our community fund, as an example, or into any one of our other, you know, special funds that we have. Or if you want to say, okay, I'm really into the arts, where do I start? You know, then the conversation is, okay, performing arts, what kind of art, community art, young people, the indigenous communities, you know, and the art that they're creating and to, to raise awareness of the lands that we all live on that used to be theirs. I mean, it's like you can imagine how these conversations can go just depending on where the donors are. Yeah. So again, we, we you know, we try to meet you where you're at and where your interests are. You just keep questioning and you get a little deeper and a little deeper. So I always like to end these conversations with asking you, Nicole, if there's anything I didn't ask you that you wished I had. I think we've covered just about everything. I, you know, what I, what I hope is that your listeners know that so much is possible. Giving and giving back doesn't have to be complicated. And there are people in your community who want to help you do good. What a great place to end. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's guests and to read the show notes for this episode, go to lifedeathlaw.com. 
And if you like this podcast, you might also like subscribing to my weekly Substack newsletter called Life Death Law. I'll have a link to that on the show notes as well. If you'd like to ask me a question to be answered on the podcast, just send me a voice memo or an email to askliza at lifedeathlaw.com. Make sure to tell me your name and where you're writing from. And who knows, you might hear your question on the show. So take care and remember, when it comes to life, death, and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. And please remember, the information on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship.